I've been in a series for the last few weeks that we've titled Negotiate. And what we're talking about is standing strong in a weak world. And we've established that we live in a postmodern, post-biblical era. And we've established that there is a lot of uh, humanistic style reasoning that's taking place in our culture today. We've come to realize that the absolutes and the moral absolutes and objective truths of God have been somewhat ignored, disregarded, and people are not paying attention to it. And so we've been talking about the importance of how do I take that strong stand in Jesus' name with great reverence toward God and gentleness toward others, 1 Peter 3.15 style thinking, and how do I live it out? So that's where we're going to go today. So if I had to title our talk today, I would title it The Subtle Power of Compromise. The Subtle Power of Compromise. Now, how many of you guys remember the tragic explosion of Space Shuttle Challenger in January of 1986? You remember that? And I'll never forget that January morning when the shuttle took off and just seconds after it started climbing, bam, this fireball, this great explosion was in the air. You know, people stood there watching it, and days uh, after, people were asking the question, what happened? What went wrong? The Rogers Commission was a group that was brought in to investigate the destruction. They discovered this, interesting, that an O-ring in the right rocket booster failed at takeoff. Right rocket booster, this O-ring, what is that? It was only about a quarter of an inch thick. It was about 38 feet in circumference. And it was just a very, very, very small thing on the shuttle. In comparison to the size of the Challenger, it was not that big. Reports are back in 1977, NASA was doing a investigation on their shuttle and on even potential challenger and someone had come to them and said you know the faulty design on that o-ring could lead to catastrophic disaster but nothing was ever really done to totally correct it so here's the point here's the point something considered very small even in our lives at times can lead to disaster if we're not careful, we ignore the faulty O-rings in our life. And all of us can have them. All of us can open the door of what I call the subtle area of compromise where we start to negotiate on things that are important but maybe not as big. Now, I think part of our reasoning at times is it's those big sins, those sins that we've labeled as big, whether it be drunkenness or whether it be adultery or whether it be whatever, murder, that we look at those big sins, we call them, and go, I've got to stay away and run from those. But reality is it might be those small little sins, the acceptable sins even within the church that's robbing you of your joy right now, that's really taking you out of the game. Those little areas that you don't pay any attention to could be the ones that are absolutely tripping you up even as you do life. Now, reality is when you take one step in the wrong direction, 
And that wrong direction, you know what it is. You can open the door for chaos, actions, beliefs, thinking, and before you know it, your lifestyle is filled with disaster. Satan's greatest ploy is it's just a little thing. A little bit of this is not going to hurt you. But once you enter that slippery slope, you start to rationalize and justify whatever the thinking or the action or the behavior is, and it becomes very, very difficult to repent and turn back to God. Anybody ever experienced that in their own journey? I have. So every step you take, uh, take outside of the will of God is going to be something very difficult for you to repent of and return back to God on. And so I want to talk today about some of those small O-rings in your life. I call them areas of compromise that can be robbing you of your joy. And we've all got them. Now, believe me, I'm going to hit eight. I could hit about 50, 100. I'm not going to talk about gossip, even though I could. I'm not going to talk about slander, bitterness, unforgiveness. Let me go ahead and get this one out there. I'm not going to talk about patriotism, which is a sin for some people. They get so aligned with the political structure, they forget who they are in Christ. I'm not going to talk about those. I'm talking about eight. But I want you to pay attention to these. And I want you to think about your own walk with God right now to see if you've opened the door that's led you down a slippery slope that could bring about catastrophic destruction for you. Now, we've defined the word compromise as to erode or to diminish. And what we mean by that is to drift away from an established set of rules or standards that God's laid out. So anytime we talk about compromise... We're not talking about just willful, outright, I'm not going to do it. We're talking about just this slow drift away from, right? I mean, taking the kids to the beach. I remember when they were younger, and we would sit there, and we would have fun at the beach. But you get out in the ocean, and all of a sudden, man, the kid starts here, and before you know it, they're 75 yards down the beach. What happened? They didn't walk there, but it was the tide and the tilt of the current that continue to cause them to drift. All of us are capable of drifting, taking our eyes off the North Star of the gospel, and we've got to have these boundaries, if you will. Now, here's our hotel. You see this. Yes, there's this lifeguard chair. You see this. About every 30 seconds, I want you to look up and see where you're at. Okay, because if you get outside the bounds of this hotel we're staying at and this lifeguard chair, you know you've gone too far. Come back over. And we've got to have those standards and boundaries in our life. Now, I want to hit eight areas that can become those areas of subtle compromise. The first one is going to be fear. Now, this is one of those things that's almost acceptable within the church, but it blows my mind. The word do not fear or do not be afraid appears 365 times in the Bible, almost like God's throwing you a bone for every day on the planet, right? Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, do not fear. Do not fear those who are able to kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. He goes on in verse 31 and says, do not fear. I heard years ago a working definition of fear is false evidence appearing real. It's false evidence appearing real. So what is the opposite of fear? 
Some of us, if we were asked that question and we were doing a little fill-in-the-blank subjective questionnaire, what is the opposite of fear? Some people would say courage. Some people would say bravery. What is the opposite of fear? I believe the opposite of fear is love. And there's a reason why. Now, the Bible says that God is love. So what really is the opposite of fear? The opposite of fear is God. The opposite of fear is God. If you're a child of God, the sin of fear should not control you. If you're a child of God, you should not live under the control of fear. Here's the puzzling thing. I've walked with Jesus now. This October will be 30 years. Why are some of the most fearful people I've ever met in the church? Why are some of those that are afraid the most, who risk the least, in the church? Why? It is a contradiction of the nature of God to live in fear. Why do we find ourselves afraid so much, afraid to take risk? Risk is a four-letter dirty word for some people. We want to play it safe. We want to stay where we're at. We don't want to do anymore. But why? I want you to think about it. I started thinking about this. It amazes me that for so many people that attend church, that fear was used to present the gospel. If we can scare the hell out of them or scare them away from hell, then they will come to faith in Christ. Fear is a bad motivator. It doesn't sustain you remember, you heard it. If you were to stand before God and he should say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Like God was already ticked at me. You know, God loves you, but if you refuse to respond to the goodness of the gospel, you're going to spend eternity in hell. You realize that, don't you? And for some people, their introduction even to what salvation was, was fear-based. Of Fear-based gospel will not keep you. Ravi Zacharias said that rules without relationship promote rebellion. People have looked saying they went to this independent fundamental Baptist church, but by the time they got to college, they rebelled. What went wrong? And you cannot respond to God daily out of a fear-based economy. Paul would say in Corinthians, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ invites us. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. It says, we have come to know and we have come to believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who loves abides in God. And God abides in him. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. What is perfect love? It's God. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Perfect love casts out all fear. Because fear involves punishment. Fear involves punishment. Is my reason for walking with Jesus to avoid hell. That's not my reason. The benefit of walking with Jesus is I'm not going to go to hell. 
But my reason is this God who made me in his image, redeemed me with his blood, and desires to fill me with his Holy Spirit, desires a relationship with me. That is the motivation. When Jesus cries out, and even John would write earlier, for God so loved. Fear is a bad motivator. And for some people in the church, we continue to bite our nails and stress over everything as if God's not in control. Fear is really saying that God is not in control. Fear really exposes what your sovereign view of God is all about. Perfect love that comes from Abba through agape love cast out all, all, all. Some of us would be wise to just circle that word right there, all. It cast out all fear. So if you're if the catalyst for your obedience is fear, you're going to be jacked up. But in the church, in the church, it's almost like we pacify that or excuse that as being okay. It's not okay. It's a joy robber. Here's the second one. Apathy. Apathy in the church drives me crazy. Apathy, period, drives me crazy. Revelation 3 says, I know your deeds. I know your actions. I know how you're living. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm, meaning you're not cold or hot, he goes, I'm going to spew you and spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm is apathy. Apathy means I'm not totally locked in. I'm not really fired up. You can ask people even in the church at the time, how are you doing? I'm all right. All right is not an address that the born-again, blood-bought child of God should live at. I was all right when I was lost. I was all right when I was trying to get my needs met with these less wild lovers. How you doing? I'm all right. I didn't have hope. I didn't have healing. I didn't have joy. I didn't have peace. I didn't have salvation. Apathy. What an interesting dude to hang out with. Apathy's uh, best two sidekicks that he runs with daily are passiveness and mediocre. When you find apathy, he will never attract much more than himself. He loves hanging out with passiveness and mediocre. Have you done a study of the character of God? Have you ever studied in detail the character of God? There is nothing passive, apathetic, mediocre about our God. Do a study on the character and nature of God. There's nothing passive about him. There's nothing mediocre about him. But just like fear, apathy is an insult. It is a contradiction to the nature and character of God. God's power is beyond comprehension. His beauty is beyond description. His love cannot be measured. The same God that created the heavens and the earth in his omnipotence and omnipresence and omniscience of who he is invites you to a relationship with him. Is that not mind-blowing? Is that not mind-blowing to think that the God of all creation looks at you and says, I want you to know me. I want you to walk with me. I believe one of the biggest turnoffs in our culture and the reason we see momentum with Mormons and Muslims and other groups out there 
is that the church is filled with apathetic, passive people that are not difference makers. I'm telling you, how many people have you met when you hung out with them saying, I want to be like them. I want to get some time with them. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to carve out some time to see what's happening in that dude's life. When you study the pages of Scripture, when people met Jesus, they were radically changed. Everything changed. When you see a person encountering Jesus Christ, repenting, responding, and receiving, they were radically changed. So the question has to be posed, have I really experienced God on God's terms? Did I come to him on my terms trying to reduce him down to a manageable God that would be safe? Or have I violently repented and responded to the God of the Bible and the God of all creation? Once that happens, you will not live a life of apathy. You cannot live a life of apathy. So you've got to ask your question or ask yourself a question. Have I truly experienced this God? The God that I met 30 years ago radically changed and rocked my world. I personally believe, based on the study of Scripture, that an unchanged life represents an unsaved life. I just believe that. I don't believe you can meet this amazing God of grace and wonder and not be in awe of him 24-7. Every day this God should be stirring your soul. So that's a joy robber in the church. That can be a joy robber for some of you. You're sitting here going, I do live in fear, but I do live in this area of empathy. That's not God. Ask him to just absolutely blow you away. Repent of your sin. Repent of your passiveness. Repent from being lethargic. Repent for not getting into the word. Repent for not giving. Repent for not sharing. Repent for not serving. Repent for not praying. Repent for not fellowshipping. Repent. I mean, how do you get it right? You got to repent. I got to turn away from that. Now, here's a third one. Here's an easy one for us. Gluttony. Come on. Oh, that's an acceptable sin inside the church. I mean, it makes everybody happy. They don't want to look at this one. But there's more to it than just what you think of in diet. Proverbs 23.20 says, Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters. Let me give you a little theological insight. The word wine there is the umbrella of abuse of alcohol. So if you're sitting here popping a 12-pack every day, don't think you're off the hook. It deals with you. If you and Jack are hanging out every night or Evan or whichever, Jose, whoever you're chilling with, this is dealing with you. Wine is a broad topic dealing with alcohol. Listen to what he says. Do not be with, don't hang out with heavy drinkers or with gluttonous eaters. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to ruins. Write this down. A working definition for gluttony. It's a heart issue and it's a craving for more or it's a craving for excess. That, that, that's what it means. And so you can be a gluttoner when it comes to cars, when it comes to tripping your truck, when it comes to fashion. When it comes to how many stinking pair of tennis shoes you got in your closet. 
Me and Antonio were talking about this the other day, and guys who, who are coming out of the NBA and stuff, it's amazing how many kids, Jesse, in your generation are saying, man, I've got 12 pair of shoes. Guess what? When I was growing up, we had about two. We had a play pair and a player that you wore when you went to school or church. PF Flyers, baby, guaranteed blisters on the bottom of them. But we're living in this society that almost applauds or supports the gluttony mindset. Gluttony basically says that those voids in my life that God really desires to meet, I will fill them up somewhere else. Were you a gluttoner with food? Yes. Were you a gluttoner with alcohol? Yes. 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 I would crush a buffet in a heartbeat. <laughs> crush it. In college, damage. After ball games, I'll never forget. I mean, we'd go back to the hotel, a large Domino's, kill it. When they sold beer, they didn't sell them by individuals. Six, 12, 24, they were finished. It was an excess problem. It was a desire for more. It was a not satisfied in my soul. When I came to faith in Christ and God said, you've got a gluttony problem. You can look at some people and think, oh, they're heavy. They must be uh, struggling with gluttony. No, no, don't, don't make the assumption yet. My little 12-year-old can flat out eat any of us, and she's the smallest thing in my house. It doesn't necessarily mean body type reveals whether you're struggling with it. It's a heart issue. We've got to put more stuff in our house. We've got to put more stuff in our stomach. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. It leads to a life of discontent. And what gluttony basically says is God is not enough. God is not capable of meeting my needs. When the writer of Hebrews says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the finisher of our faith, how do I solve and how do I remedy having a problem of gluttony? I fix my eyes on Jesus. I stand in awe of God. God becomes enough. I plug into the Savior. I start to walk in the freedom of the Spirit. It changes my perspective. Amen. Here's another one, worry. Worry is a very interesting one. Now, the word worry, just in its purest definition, it means to knot up and tie up. Now, a lot of us, a lot of us are in bondage to worry. A lot of us are worrying about what's going to happen later today, what's going to happen next week. Worry gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, said, Worry is the interest paid on trouble before it's due. Worry is interest paid on trouble before it's due. You ain't even got the trouble in your life yet. Reality is circumstances never make you. They only reveal you anyway. What's inside of you is going to leak out. So if it's fear and if it's worry and if it's apathy, it's going to come out. But here's an interesting stat. 40% of the things we worry about never happen. I was worried about it. Did it happen? No. 30% of the things we worry about are things in our past that we can't change. I wish I did get mulligans every day, but I don't. I mean, hey, you can't change it. Here's an interesting uh, stat. 12% of our worry 
It's through criticism of others, and most of it's not even true. I just got back from Kansas City. Do you know how many GMs are out there in the world that can do a better job than my buddy who is the GM? What do you mean by that? I mean, all them cats that sit on the sofa sucking on those oatmeal cookies as they dip them in the milk, tell them I would, this is what he needs to do. Why? They're going to criticize you. When you become a coach or you become a pastor or you become a leader, you're going to be criticized. Can you worry about it? Our phrase is, if you're motivated by praise, you'll always be deflated by criticism. What motivates you? 10% is about health, which gets worse with stress. So 92% of the things that we worry about really are stupid. That's the conclusion. 8% is about real problems we'll face. But what does your life look like? When people hang out with you, are you just knotted up, bound up, no freedom, no joy? You know what worry basically says? God's not enough. Worry basically says God's not in control. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, drink, nor your body as to what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? This is good right here. Was Jesus really serious about not worrying? Yeah, he was serious. Why? Because worry is symptomatic of a larger problem. People will say, pray for me, man. I just struggle with worry. No, you don't. The symptomatic issue is worry. What's the deeper problem? You don't trust God. You don't have faith that God is enough. And I'm not going to pray that worry would go. I'm going to pray that you would learn to trust God. I was talking to a person this week, and some things kind of got unraveled a little bit for them, and they called, and they were all about panic. Their circumstances were not what they wanted them to be. When you go through a rough place and the circumstances are not what you want them to be, do you leak into panic or do you leak into prayer? Do you see what's happening on any given day as a disappointment or his appointment? And I told this person I was talking to, I said, why do you choose to live in the land of disappointment? Disappointment is defeat, it's disgust, it's disruption, it's chaos all the time. If you start to live in his appointment, you move into hope. They call the next day and say, you're not going to believe what happened. (laughs) What happened? Well, you know how bad it was yesterday. Let me tell you what happened today. Your perspective is still jacked up. You're attached to an outcome. When you're passionate about the process and not attached to the outcome, you get to experience the goodness of his grace in the moment of the now. And and so many people, they just stay locked up. Worry is the result of bearing a weight that only God can bear. When Peter says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. That's what we're supposed to do. I'm telling you, I see it robbing people's joy in the church. It's an area of compromise. It's where we negotiate and we go, it's my job to worry. Here's another one, flattery. This is for some other churches down the road, not for us, but flattery. 
And flattery is basically when your identity is based on the praise and approval of other people. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, am I seeking the approval of man or the approval of God? I was, if I was seeking man's approval, I couldn't be a servant of Christ. But we're so fragile. And it's like we really do at times feel like we need the, uh, the praise and the approval of other people. Here's where it kind of goes in our society today. Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram. You're so fired up about that new selfie that you posted at 8 o'clock. And you've checked your little Facebook, Instagram, whatever. And at 10 o'clock, when you've only got 7 likes and not 77 likes, it's going to disrupt the way you sleep that night. Can I tell you something? If I've met you and we've talked, I'm not impressed with your selfie. If you're waiting for me to like it in order for you to feel validated, you're going to have a rough day. Social media can be used for some things that are advantageous, but it really gets on my nerves for the most part. And it because I'm 52 and I grew up with cassette players with Walkmans, okay? I, I really do live in the moment of today. But have you ever noticed that? Selfies. I was looking the other day and I was amazed. And I'm not dogging any of you with this statement, no pun intended. But it was National Dog Day. Did you see all the photos that people put out about their dogs? I'm like, seriously? And I didn't like any of them because some of them I looked at and I'm like, I had a mutt one time that we got at the ballpark that just went home with us that looked about like that dog. And they said they paid 2500 for it. I'm like, are y'all serious? <laughs> but I do want to applaud y'all because August 23rd, the day we had Mac Powell here, y'all were tamed and I appreciate that because that was National Topless Day and I appreciate you showing your dogs. <laughs> The schnauzers and poodles were okay, even though I didn't like them. Seriously, August 23rd, somebody put out there it's National Topless Day. And I'm like, when are we going to have National Servants Day, National Feed the Poor Day? When are we going to get more fired up about serving than selfies, about giving than glamour? Here's something I wrote. It's hard to point people to Jesus. Listen, listen. It's hard to point people to Jesus when you need their approval. You'll gain more friends in two months by showing an interest in other people than you will in two years trying to get people to get interested in you. Did you hear what I just said? You can gain more friends and more relational equity in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in 20 years by trying to get people to be interested in you. You can't point people to Jesus. You need their approval. Comfort. I'm going to roll. I want to close it. But comfort is so problematic in the church. When the church becomes comfortable, Christianity starts to die. As a coach and as an athlete, when people become comfortable, you almost start losing Complacency sets in. You ran in the Olympics. You know how it is. You would see people around you. They quit training. They reach that barrier. 
They ran whatever that time was, and they became okay with it. You'll see it in the church. People memorize a couple of verses, and they feel like, man, I've almost got my tassel turned. I'm okay. No, you're not okay. Comfortable people resist change. If you want to make people mad, start confronting their comfort. They will get mad. The church cannot be missional and comfortable at the same time. You cannot be intentional with being a missional-minded person and just kick the feet back and recline in comfort. Now, one of my favorite Christian artists back when I first got saved, I came to faith in 85, and I got turned on to this guy's music right away. His name was Keith Green. Keith Green was a, a radical singer. His lyrics were not this Jesus is my boyfriend kind of stuff. He had a song called Asleep in the Light. Listen to the lyrics. Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care, don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Oh, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. You know, it's all I ever hear. No one aches, no one hurts, no one ever sheds one tear. But he cries, he weeps, and he bleeds as he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such sin? He brings people to your door and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace. And all of heaven just weeps. Because Jesus came to your door, you left him out in the streets. Open up, open up and give yourself away. You see the need, you hear the cries. So how can you delay? God's calling and you're the one. But like Jonah, you run. He told you to speak, but you just keep keeping it in. Oh, can't you see it's such sin? The world is sleeping in the dark. The church can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you won't even get out of bed. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Come on, get out of your bed. You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Don't close your eyes any longer and pretend the job's done. Come away, come away, come away with me, my love. It's one of my favorite songs. It's a, it's a song of agitation to the church and motivation to say, how can we sit here and do nothing? We've been rescued and redeemed from so much and to so much in Christ. Salvation is just not the hellhole you came out of. It's the holiness of Jesus that we've come to. And he starts to pour inside of us and says, you're salt and light. You don't have to live apathetic anymore. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is dying and going to hell. It's not going to happen. <laughs> the best thing that can ever happen to you is you're going to spend eternity with me as a believer. That's going to happen. So I've established that the worst thing that will ever happen to me is living life on this planet. But for the non-believer, the best thing that will ever happen to them is what they get out of life on this planet. We win. And because we win, we want to declare the good news of the gospel at our workplace, at our schools, on airplanes, wherever we're at. We get to tell people that there is a God in heaven who's real and alive and cares. Come on. 
So comfort is crazy. Consumerism. That kills the church. We've read in Scripture somehow that Jesus was a taker and not a giver. I, I mean, I don't get it. A man or woman created in the image of God is to reflect the image of God. What was God? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. What do we know about the character of God? That God so loved that he gave. God is a giving God. And Mike, we talk about this so much that people that come into church, we're not to be consumers. We don't do membership at the Cross Loganville. Members think that they can come in and take. I've got my Costco card, I'm good. I am a member, I am a consumer. But when you come to be a part of the body of Christ, you're to be a partner, and a partner is a distributor. So you should never come to church saying, the reason we're here now and not where we were yesterday is because that church was not meeting our needs. They can't. Only Jesus can meet your need. But if you come here, you should get involved in the game. Give, serve, share. Do something. Make it better. Who can do it? Partners. Consumers. They're takers. They, they don't understand the character of God. So if everywhere you go, you're just a taker, Proverbs 21, 25. Lazy people, oh, 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 listen. Lazy people consume. Pastor, president of a company, coaching. When you get lazy people, what do they want? They just consume your time. They consume your energy. They become bricks, not kites. They start weighing you down. Lazy people consume their hands refuse to work. They're always greedy for more. While the godly love to give. I would just take a look at your own life and say, am I giving time, talents, treasures? Do, do I really give faithfully? Or do I find myself as a consumer? Because Solomon said, if you're a consumer, you're lazy. Come on, Jim, back off. It's Labor Day, dude. We want to chill and grill and come on. <laughs> I'm just telling you, when I read the book, the gospel of Jesus, the loving gospel still confronts my soul to say, come on, don't, don't tolerate these bad, faulty old rings in your life, dude. Here's the last one, lying. Lying is not always just that false statement that's made with the purpose of misleading or deceiving Lying is withholding information that is pertinent to the story. Now, we've never had this conversation before. None of my kids has ever heard this conversation before. That partial disclosure is no disclosure. One of the ways people in the church lie most often is through withholding information. It's withholding. It's not just the outright lie, but it's not telling the whole picture. Making sense? When you tell me you're going to meet me at 9 o'clock and you show up at 9.15, you either told me the truth or you told me a lie. But when you say, well, the reason I'm running late is, no, the reason you're running late is you didn't plan on being there at 9 o'clock in the first place. You ever see how people deflect and spin statements? 
But it's lying. It's a form of lying. You're misrepresenting what truth is. What time were you going to meet me? Nine. The cash boys, the way we roll, if we're supposed to be somewhere at nine, we would rather be an hour early than a minute late. You ain't got to worry about this crew showing up on time. If they do it, we, we ain't playing that game. Because I think it dishonors people. Now, I'm not saying anything to y'all that get here at church at 11.05 and 11.10, 11.15. I wouldn't dare be thinking that right now. It's all about just being on time, doing the right thing, saying the right thing. Listen to what he says. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Those who are godly hate lies. Proverbs 12, 22, 13, 5. John 8, you're of your father the devil, and you do not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. Do you, do you see the, the contrast that's made in Scripture that when you lie and you deceive and you misrepresent or withhold, that it doesn't say you look just like the Father in heaven. It says that looks devilish and satanic. That's not right. So I could have dealt with gossip, patriotism. I could have dealt with drunkenness. I could have dealt with adultery. I could have dealt with fornication. I could have dealt with all kinds of sexual sins, pornonia sins. I just wanted to look at eight of them. But what I want you to do as a follower of Jesus, I want you to do some introspection and ask the Holy Spirit to turn on the searchlight in your heart. And I don't want you to become comfortable with faulty O-rings that could cause a disaster in your journey. Anything that will rob you of the peace of Jesus and the joy of Christ in your walk, let's deal with it. Let's deal with it. And let's not become gluttonous with an excess of more and more and more we've got to have. Let's find our worth in Christ and him alone. And so that's my encouragement as we close. 